text for this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. And reading through the end of the chapter, verse 33. It's Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Paul writes, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous text this morning. We recognize that its teaching stands squarely in the face of much of what happens in our own culture, which means that it in some way and to some degree stands face to face with us as well because each one of us is steeped in the very culture in which we live. But we want to live the way you want us to live the way you've called us to live. We want to understand this. We want to understand the beauty of what you have called us to be and how you have called us to act. And we pray that you would help us to uh, gain some understanding in that area and that you yourself would grant to each of us an increasing ability and desire to live in the manner that you call us to in this passage. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I begin uh, weddings with, uh, with this illustration. The illustration is this. Once there was a little girl who had uh, uh, just heard the story of Snow White for the first time. She was at nursery school and uh, she ran home as soon as school was over to tell her mom what she had, uh, what she had heard. And with wide-eyed excitement, she talked about how the, the, uh, the Prince Charming had arrived and, and kissed beautiful Snow White and uh, brought her back to life. And Susie said excitedly, and, and you know what happened next? 
And her mother smiled very nice and said, uh, yes, Susie, she said, uh, they lived happily ever after. And Susie got this sort of sad look on her face. She says, no, she says, they got married. (laughs) Well, I mean, in a simple way, uh, Susie really does pinpoint what so many of us know intimately. And that is that uh, getting married and living happily ever after are not necessarily synonymous. All right, one doesn't require that the other is going to happen. In fact, marriages throughout our society, including the church, are in trouble. Literally one out of two collapse. And that's one out of two within the church as well. That's society-wide. What's happened? What's gone wrong? What, what is it that, that people in marriages are, are filled with abuse Bitterness and resentment and indifference and anger and unforgiveness. Why do these things characterize so many of relationships that we see? Some people claim that, you know, it's doing what God wants them to do. My contention is that it's because they don't do what God wants them to do. That those kinds of things are prevalent in marriage relationships. This text is really interesting because if, if you understand where it falls, you begin to get a sense of, of how Paul's been moving along. You realize that last week we talked about the fact that he's talking about the fact that we ought to all be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. Then he gives us characteristics of what that looks like. And one of those, believe it or not, is submitting to one another. And then he gives us three very specific examples of how that general principle of submitting to one another works out. Between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, or employers and employees, however you want to look at it in these days. And then, right after that, what does he talk about? Spiritual warfare. In fact, that's how he ends the book. He basically talks about how the devil and your flesh come after you. And it strikes me that at least, if nothing else, he's saying, you know what? You want to be filled with the Spirit, but you have an enemy over here. And you know where the battleground is? Nine times out of ten, it's in the closest relationships that you have. That's where the battle takes place. And so understanding that this teaching is meant to grant to us a a degree of, of, of clarity and understanding, as well as wisdom about how to live in these relationships is incredibly important because God has a beautiful thing in mind for marriage he really does he wants our marriage to be the most delightful human relationship that we have and so in our text and in others like it he sets forth really what he we might call anyway the prescription for a great marriage what do we have to do in order to have relationships that really honor God, and are deeply satisfying and wonderful at the same time. We need straight talk these days because there's so much fluff, there's so much error out there about what makes a good marriage relationship. And this isn't just just for people who are married. If you're not married, you may be married someday. And this text tells you two things. Number one, the kind of individual you ought to seek to be. And secondly, the kind of individual 
that you want your spouse to be. So, we'll begin looking at this text by looking at the general principle that Paul lays out in verse 21, and then how he applies it to both husbands and wives in verses 22 to 33. Paul begins in verse 21 with this principle of submission, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. As I've just mentioned, he basically uses this idea of submission to one another as one of the characteristics of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, if if you look up the word submit, you recognize that it's generally used, or at least derived from a military term, which meant to put in rank under. So, for instance, I don't care what Army, Navy, or Air Force you look at, you know, the sergeant ranks between lieutenants and privates. The privates are all under him. All the officers are above him. If you're a first Louis, that's nice, but you've got to answer to the major, but at least you get to lord it over the, the sergeants and the NCOs and the privates. There's a ranking, and that's what Paul's talking about here. There is a ranking, a, a, a giving of, uh, of order to human relationships that God has established. Now, the main idea behind that is not that one is compelled to give obedience to or submit to, as we might understand it in in the service. Paul releases it from this compulsion because of rank or order, but because we voluntarily do it out of reverence to Christ. We voluntarily give our rights over to another individual because of Christ. And so it's a yielding to one another in love and in trusting God with, with that relationship. A man named uh, Stephen Beck, uh, I think he illustrated this well. He was, uh, he was driving through the country one day, and he had never been there before. And he comes down to this, this, this small one-lane bridge that crossed a, a little uh, river. And uh, he noticed there was a yield sign there because it was a single lane. And so he stopped didn't see a car coming, and so he, he drove across the bridge, went on to his destination. When he was done doing his business, he, he turned around and he came back the same way. He gets to the bridge, and actually he was surprised to see that on that side of the bridge as well, there was a yield sign. And so he did what the sign said. He stopped, and he looked, and he made sure that there was no one coming. As he was crossing the bridge, he was thinking, you know, now I'm sure that there was one on the other side when I came through the first time. So when he got over there, he stopped, and sure enough, he saw that there was a yield sign there as well. Well, the simple fact of the matter is, is that they put yield signs in both directions, right? So that people will graciously and thoughtfully and willingly yield to the other to avoid head-on collisions, Right? That makes, that makes perfect sense in driving. And essentially what Paul is saying here is the same thing. When we submit to one another, we yield up our rights in order not to have head-on relational collisions with each other. Unnecessary collisions with one another. And so if you read the scriptures, you see that each of us should be willing to be the least rather than wanting to be the most. That we should be willing to serve one another. 
Jesus talked about in John chapter 13, washing the disciples' feet. In Romans 12, Paul says we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to give preference to one another in honor. And in Philippians 2.3, passage we've read earlier, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, let each of you regard one another as, get this, more important than yourself. Now the motivation for doing this, of course, is out of reverence, out of fear for Christ. And that doesn't mean we cower in dread, oh my goodness, what's, what's Jesus going to do? But there's a certain, certain truth to that. Because Jesus expects that because it is he who asks it of us, we will do it because we reverence him, but also because we recognize that as our Lord and as our God, we must answer to him for how we have conducted ourselves with others. And now the question arises, you know, how does this passage, how does this principle inform what comes after it? And it's simply this, that it forms the transition between what it means to be filled with the Spirit and how that actually works out in very specific situations. And here it means that our submission to one another has an effect on our relationships, and here what he's going to be talking about is the relationship between husband and wife. So we'll turn to that, beginning at verse 22. First it talks about the responsibility of the wife to be subject to their own husbands as to the Lord. In 1 Peter 3.1, and in this passage, and in Colossians 3.18, wives are told to submit to their husbands. Now the word translated submit or subject is the same word there as it is in verse 31. It means to voluntarily arrange themselves underneath the leadership or the headship of the husband. At every point in the New Testament, and this word occurs 40 times, At every point, it describes a surrendering of one's will to the will of someone else. And so there's no question about what the word means or about what Paul is saying. When he says submit, he is talking about a real submission. And I want to say that I believe that he he gets his model from Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ voluntarily submitted himself to his Father. And yet Jesus was, the the Shorter Catechism tells us, equal with God the Father, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. He was no less intelligent, no less dignified, he was no less important, he was not due less honor or less worship or less obedience than God the Father. And yet from from eternity... Each member of the Trinity has had a different role to play. The Father planned our salvation. The Son accomplished it at the cross. The Holy Spirit applied it to our lives. And in this great work of redemption, Jesus Christ voluntarily submitted himself to the will of the Father in order to secure our salvation. And trusted himself to the Father for the outcome. Now, similarly, this teaching concerning the submission of the wife to her husband 
does not require in any way or even imply in any way that the woman is less of a personage than her husband is. That somehow she's less intelligent, less capable, less of an individual, less worthy of dignity or anything else than the man. In fact, it is an appeal to the wife, who is equal by creation as well as redemption, to voluntarily submit herself to the authority that God has established. Now, it's critically important that we remember here that submission to authority is submission to God. Whatever that authority might be. Paul tells us that in Romans. Whether it's the government, whether it's the family, whether it's an employer, whether it's a teacher in school, whatever the legitimate authority is, our obedience to that authority, our submission to that authority is a legitimate uh, submission to God. And rebellion against that authority, whatever that legitimate authority might be, is rebellion against God who has established it. So submission in role as a woman, as a wife, and equality in dignity as a person are not contradictory in the scripture. They stand side by side. Just the same way as in Jesus Christ, his full deity stands side by side with his subservience to the Father. One does not deny the other. They are not in tension. In fact, Paul tells us that men and women are fellow heirs of the grace of life. Nevertheless, he also says that the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, it's also true that this submission is not merely some external act. It's not just a woman ducking so that God can hit her husband. Okay? It's more than that. There's, there's something that actually takes place in the heart and in the soul, a willingness there, that is a beautiful thing. It's an inner quality of gentleness that really seeks to affirm and encourage her husband's leadership and his growth and maturing in leadership. Because as any woman here can tell you, no man comes to the job ready for it. He doesn't. He's a newbie. He needs help. He needs encouragement. He needs nourishment in that. And the way that best takes place is when the wife properly submits. I'm not saying that she should be a doormat. She doesn't have to do everything her husband says, especially if he's calling it her sin. But there's a proper way in which she nourishes that leadership and that growth and that maturity in him. In fact, Peter uses Sarah as a beautiful example of this. And he says that Sarah was a, was a woman of, godly, of a godly spirit. And he said she had a deep hope and trust in God that in honoring her husband, in respecting him, and in submitting to him, she could trust that however God worked it out through Abraham and used her in the process, it would be okay. And Peter praises her for it and lifts her up as an outstanding example of a woman who understood 
and actually put into practice the principle that he is saying here. So consider for a minute here what Paul is saying. Paul says, first of all, that God wants a wife to display the character of Christ in her submission to her husband. Secondly, that submission to any authority, including the husband in the marriage, pleases God and is to be done for the Lord's sake. And thirdly, that God calls women who are in a marriage relationship to trust him, meaning God, enough to submit to their husbands in a proper way and trust that things will work out. As a matter of fact, God is so consistent with his blessing of that that he says in 1 Corinthians 7 that even a woman who is married to an unbeliever if she bears that proper submission and testimony to her husband God may very easily use it to bring her husband to a saving knowledge of himself that's how powerful and pervasive this principle is in the lives of people It doesn't demonstrate weakness or foolishness on the part of a woman to submit to her husband. But it takes integrity and a strength of character and a love for God and a willingness to cast oneself entirely upon his plan and purpose for them. It's not letting themselves be, you know, a victim of their husbands. But it's allowing themselves to be a servant of the Lord. Well, Paul moves on now to consider the responsibility of the husband to properly fulfill his role before God. And notice that he spends three times as much talking about this to men. I think there's a reason here. I'm not going to necessarily put forward what I think the reason is, except that you guys just don't get it. We just don't. It is hard for us to hear what God has to say here. But we're going to hear it anyway. He basically says this. That our leadership of our wives and our families, if we have them, is a sacrificial leadership. A sacrificial leadership that compares directly to the way in which Christ sacrificed himself on behalf of the church. what I mean, he says, husbands, love your wives, what? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. Well, what makes this style of leadership? Well, first of all, it is a real leadership, just as woman's submission is a real submission. Paul makes this clear in verse 23, where he says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church. And so Paul affirms, just the way Peter does, that male headship is divinely appointed. It's not something we get by being male. It's something that God has set in place, and we are to respond to it just as obediently as a woman is to respond to her place in submission. The husband as leader must always, always give himself over to his wife's good, nourishing and cherishing her, we read before. And remembering 
that she is our equal and that she has voluntarily voluntarily placed herself in our care under our protection under our leadership out of her love for Christ and because she is doing that it means that we have to imitate Christ's sacrificial love for the church to her and that means being gentle it means being sensitive it means being wise so it means we have to treat her in a sensitive manner we have to give ourselves in a personal and sacrificial way the first thing we need to be thinking about is how to grant our wives honor how to build them up how to supply them with the things they need to fulfill their role as as wives and perhaps as, as mothers if we have children we are to care for them so that she has the freedom and the encouragement to grow and mature as a woman of God and to carry out the responsibilities that God has given to her it cannot and it must not be a headship that crushes our wife's talents and gifts on the contrary we're supposed to respect what God has given to our wives their gifts, their insights, their abilities their experience to value and encourage their input and to seek that input I shudder to think quite frankly of the thousands of times I could have tubed I could have made terrible decisions had I been so proud and arrogant and not sought my wife's advice not sought her feedback or her opinion on something because she gives me a a wider scope a, a broader understanding of issues of people of possibilities and if I saw Yahoo and I'm just going to kind of lead by you know swinging my lasso and pulling out my six gun that's stupid if I'm going to lead I want to lead as a wise man I want to lead as a man who understands, who's taken everything he possibly can into consideration. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, I have to both respect and seek and carefully take into consideration what my wife thinks, feels, understands, and believes. It means that I'm going to live with my wife in a way that demonstrates not only that I know her, but that I take what I know into consideration. And so when I'm thinking about my wife, I want to, I want to remember what, what causes her joy, what discourages her, what makes her sad, what her hopes and dreams are, what disappoints my wife, what she struggle with. I want to be aware of, of what she thinks, what her perspectives, her ideals, her beliefs and her values are. I want to take into consideration what her her strengths and weaknesses are physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. I need to know these things about her. And I should be able to reasonably predict how my wife is going to think or feel about almost any given situation. I'm getting better. (laughs) But this is what a husband needs to do. And if he ignores this part, of his leadership, of his headship in the family, he is missing the boat. 
he's completely missing the boat. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that because God has called us to it, he requires it of us, there is no thing that we can say that's going to deny our ability and capacity to do it by his grace. Finally, I'm going to give you just another quick, short list of what men ought to be able to do in their, in their roles as husbands. First, to maintain a strong and tender pursuit of their wives. In other words, to continue to instill a sense of romance. I found a great example. You guys are never going to live up to this one, and neither am I. But it's fantastic. So I give it to you as a, as a benchmark, something you can shoot at. Winston Churchill and his wife uh, were invited to uh, a dinner party one time. It was, this was after, uh, after the war, after he was uh, uh, prime minister. And, uh, you know, somebody decided they'd play a little game around the table, you know, while they were eating. And, and so they, they asked this question. And the question was this. Um, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And everybody else went first. Going around the table, okay, and finally it comes to Sir Winston. And Winston says this, he says, If I could not be who I am, I would most like to be... And then he pauses for effect, he turns and he looks at his wife Clementine, and he says, Mrs. Churchill's second husband... That man got a kiss on the way home. (laughs) What a beautiful thing to say to your wife when you've been married for 40 years that the thing you would want more than anything else is to repeat it with her. That's romance. That's a beautiful thing. That's what wives long to hear from their husbands. It also means, and this is just as hard, it means to confess your sins to her and ask for forgiveness. It means to repent. And it means to take the risk of changing in some way. It also means to take responsibility for your failures and not to blame it on your wife. But to actually stand up and acknowledge that you're the one who made a poor decision. And you're the one who's going to bear the responsibility for that. It may mean to allow your wife to see you cry. To let her know that you really do harbor deep, powerful feelings. And that every once in a while, she's going to see them. And she'll value that. And last but not least, it also means that we are to take the lead in trying to encourage spiritual intimacy with our wives, whatever that might look like. There was a, there was a Christian man, fairly, uh, fairly immature, who was uh, reading a book on being a leader and decided to start at home. So he, uh, he rushed home to his wife and he pointed his finger in her face and he says... You go make me a a gourmet meal, he says, and then draw me a bath. And he says, and after I'm done eating my supper and drawing a bath, he says, you know who's going to dress me and comb my hair? She looks at him and says, yep, the mortician. (laughs) 
This is an example of what not to do. All right? As husbands and as wives. This is not what God has called us to. What God puts together in this passage is this beautiful complementarity. This this leadership, this headship in the home by the husband that is so loving and so embraceive of his wife. So willing to lift her up and sacrifice himself on behalf of her so that she can be all that God has called her to be. To take her seriously as a co-equal, as a partner in their, their responsibilities before God. That it should make it easy for a woman to submit herself to that kind of loving headship in the home. And in doing so, actually affirm it and encourage it and help it become all the more mature and beautiful. There's one thing that that God wants wants us to see from this text and other related texts. It's the beautiful thing that he has for Christian marriage. During the last minutes of Jonathan Edwards' life, he didn't talk about heaven or hell. He didn't talk about philosophy or theology or anything else. You know what he spoke about? He spoke about his wife, Sarah. With his dying breath, this is what he said. He said, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature that I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever that is what God wants us to experience in Christian marriage that is why he's given us this prescription that true intimacy a deep abiding and everlasting love will be the bond that God establishes between a husband and wife that's why marriage between a husband and a wife is the foundation of society. May every single one of us have the grace and the kindness of God to know this in our own lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for the teaching of Scripture because we are reminded that you call us to the highest and a most joyous life, a life in which when we actually strive to live these things out, we find they bear a fruit that is so delicious, so wonderful, so all-encompassing and fulfilling and rewarding that we wonder how we ever settled for less. I pray, O oh God, for each of us, that we would strive for the very things that you lay before us here. And that where we have failed, we would cast those failures upon you, readily acknowledging them, but seeking your enablement to live differently. And believing that you will give it. Because that is what you want from us. We ask that for those who are yet unmarried, That in their lives, Lord, they would seek so far as it lies within them to do so. And wherever they have opportunity to grow as men and women 
who inculcate these same wonderful attributes and that you might grant them someday to find another a spouse who is also living those kind of values as well do these things we pray continue to make your name great in the marriages of our world for your glory and honor Amen.